0: The following resource is from LMPC.org, and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at LMPC.org
1: slash give. A reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him to The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
0: Good morning. Uh, My name is Frank Hitchings. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I want to add my welcome to that of Brian's. Uh, We are glad that you're here. If you're away from your church home uh, or don't have a church home, we're glad you're here with us this morning and trust the Lord will bless your time with us. Uh, We had, as we mentioned, a sound system uh, epic failure last night and our sound crew managed to get this one going, uh, got a a different one in place uh, going. And on top of that, I've had uh, struggles the last couple of weeks with my voice, so this may not be the easiest uh, sermon for you to listen to but we will pray that it holds out this morning and before we pray too I was thinking uh, singing the John Newton hymn this morning let us love and sing and wonder and Brian drawing attention to it you know John Newton the uh, the ex-slave ship captain uh, who was converted and became a pastor and uh, actually we were in his church the church he used to preach in in London last fall Uh, And I found this great quote from John Newton that I I may not have shared with you yet. It's uh, Newton writing on the gift and the importance of Scripture. He says this, If we wander from Scripture in pursuit either of present peace or future hope, our search will always end in disappointment. He is right. If we wander from Scripture searching for present peace or future hope, We're always disappointed. So let's go to the Lord now and ask his blessing on us as we go to his holy word. Father, we want to be a people who draw near to you and cherish your word and are changed by your word. We thank you for how you've used it in our hearts and lives, how you've grown us in grace, and we pray you would do that again this day, that through the powerful work of your spirit, we would be grown in grace and faith, that that we would learn more of who you are and more of who we are. Uh, If we are in Christ, we would deepen us, Lord, in faith and repentance, that our lives uh, might be lived for your glory. And if there are those in our midst, Lord, who have not yet met you, we pray that this would be the day you open their hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin our study this morning, Uh, It's good for us to back up just a little bit and review last week's passage. We finished chapter 9 last week. We were looking at the topic of where following Jesus will lead us. And if you were here, if you remember the second point, the second point was it will lead us to a merciful spirit toward those who oppose Jesus. We, we saw that in chapter 9 where uh, uh, Peter or James and John were, were uh, saying these towns that, that Jesus is not being received in. Their response to the hostility to Jesus was this in verse 54. He said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And they weren't kidding. They were remembering uh, an event in the life of Elijah uh, where Elijah did just that. And Jesus rebuked them, and and we saw Jesus calling that, or, or teaching them that the ethic of the kingdom is that there will be a merciful spirit, not just towards each other in the church, but even towards those who oppose Jesus. And that led us to the application point of just honestly asking ourselves, would we be able to say that our hearts and lives are marked by a merciful spirit towards those who oppose Jesus? Can we say that, or would it be more accurate to say we have a judgmental and harsh spirit towards those who oppose Jesus? I had some interesting conversations uh, this week with people uh, who were here last week and heard the message. And this morning, in a sense, I want us to build on that by asking another question. What would it look like, practically, what would it look like to have a merciful spirit towards those who oppose Jesus. And in a sense, that's one of the questions Jesus is answering in our passage this morning. One of the, one of the reasons Luke has included this. So let's jump in this morning. I want to see what Jesus is calling his followers to. If you look in your outline in your bulletin, we'll see four points. Jesus calls his followers first to fervently pray for the vast gospel opportunities in the world around us. Look at the first two verses. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." So what Luke's recording here is Jesus is giving instructions to this larger group, this group of 72 of his followers. He's sending them out to engage in his mission, to to deliver his message that the kingdom of God is among them. And he sends them out in these groups of two saying, the harvest is plentiful. We've all heard this most of our lives. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers, the laborers are few. Now the harvest is plentiful. What does that mean? It means there's much work to be done, and the time is now. It's harvest time now, and yet the laborers are few, meaning more workers are needed. Meaning there's an urgency uh, that Jesus is trying to place in the hearts of his followers that that we're to to uh, to feel the urgency and to embrace that urgency. So he says, here's what you need to do about this. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Therefore, what does he say? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labor. Pray with urgency. Pray earnestly that God would raise up and send out uh, men and women and boys and girls to engage in his mission and to share the good news that the kingdom of God is among them and to share the good news even with those who oppose Jesus. I was on the phone this week uh, talking with a friend of mine in Mississippi who used to farm cotton, and he was like, what are, you, what are you talking about this week? What are you preaching this week? And I was sharing with him this passage, and we were just talking about how difficult it is to understand, to really understand this, uh, this agrarian illustration in a non-agrarian society. But farmers understand this. When it's harvest time, they're on it. My friend said, if you can see the crop, you're going to be working to harvest it. He said, you don't meander out into the fields at 9 o'clock and stop at 5 o'clock. You're in the fields ready to go when the dawn breaks and you don't return until it's dark. It's all hands on deck. And nowadays, there's all that cotton combine equipment. You know, they have lights on them. They can run them 24 hours a day when it's harvest time. Farmers know there's an urgency when it's harvest time. Jesus' original listeners would have known that too. I love how John records this in John 4. It's a a similar event. Jesus says this to his followers. Do you not say there's still four months until harvest. He's kind of, he's saying, you know, you think the harvest is is way off. There's not an urgency, but listen to what he says. There's still four months until harvest. Behold, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white unto harvest. Do you hear the urgency in Jesus' voice? Well, let's just pause we got four points to go through so let's just pause and apply this as simply and directly as we can here's what he's saying the harvest is plentiful but there's a problem there aren't enough laborers so pray fervently for the Lord to raise up and send out workers it's so simple it's a beautiful picture of, of of divine sovereignty and human responsibility We know God alone can change hearts. We can't change hearts. God can do that. God can replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. God can bring people to faith. He he alone can do that, but he's graciously chosen to use people like us to share the message of the kingdom. It's easy to maybe overcomplicate it, but it's really quite simple. I think the passage is calling us, Jesus is calling us to ask ourselves, does fervent kingdom prayer for all the opportunities on the as we would say on the mountain in the city and around the world does fervent kingdom kingdom prayer does it mark our lives is it a priority daily in our lives is there a sense of urgency Are we even praying at all that God would raise up and send out workers Are we praying realizing that we may very well be the answer to our own prayer? He may be wanting to send us out. Our lives throughout the week on the mountain in the city, our lives touch many other lives. Maybe we're supposed to be sharing the gospel there, building relationships where we can share the good news. Or maybe God's calling us to leave the comforts of our lives here and go elsewhere. I was thinking this week, And actually texting this week with someone uh, that used to be in our small group many years ago, Uh, we were meeting together for, we probably met together for 20 years. We had begun praying for missions that God would raise up missionaries from our very midst, from out of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, that God would raise up workers. We were praying for this very thing Jesus is speaking about and What seemed to us, all of a sudden, the Lord called Philip and Lacey Langford right out of our church, right out of the country, to India. Do y'all remember the Langfords? They're still periodically here. Lacey Whitmire and Philip Langford. They had little kids. He had a thriving law practice. He was a young lawyer. God called him to go to India with the International Justice Mission and later to Africa. We were surprised, but looking back on it, I'm not sure why really not God calls some of us to take the gospel message along with all of its implications to change the world he calls some of us to take it across the oceans to share with people that have never heard the news of Jesus he calls others of us to take it across the street to our neighbors our neighbors who really are more cultural Christians and don't know much about Jesus He calls some of us to take it across the lunchrooms in our schools or across the hall in our co-workers. As we build relationships and look for opportunities, pray fervently for opportunities to share the message of the kingdom. That's part of what a merciful spirit towards those who oppose Jesus, that's part of what it would look like. There would be fervent prayer for all the opportunities around us. But secondly, I want you to see he also calls us to fully trust in him To supply all our needs. Look at verse 3 and 4. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. (laughs) That's a little disturbing, isn't it? You know, we get that go. Okay, pray, go. We get that go out into the harvest. But then he says, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. What does that mean? Wait. I love what Leon Morris points out in his commentary. He says, lambs in the midst of wolves are in no enviable situation. He's right. That sounds like a place of great danger, doesn't it? It sounds like a place of helplessness, lambs in the midst of wolves. Uh, Morris goes on and says, faithful followers of Jesus are always, and this is key, in some sense, at the mercy of the world and in their own strength, they cannot cope with the situations in which they find themselves. He's right. We have to depend on God. We have to fully trust in him. But, but that's not enough. He goes on and says, carry no money bag or knapsack or sandals and greet no one on the road. And, and commentators have a great time with that. These verses can be a bit confusing with these prohibitions, especially like we get kind of like carry no money bag, like trust the Lord to provide what you need, uh, your knapsack, your, uh, what you would carry things in, but then you get to sandals and like what is he saying? Is he saying we're supposed to go share the gospel barefoot? And that's not what he's saying at all. It was common in that day, a common occurrence to carry a backup pair of sandals. You just couldn't walk barefoot on all the rocky stony ground and he's saying you don't need that trust God he'll provide what you need greet no one on the road he he's not saying ignore everyone you see be impolite to those you encounter on the road like when we go for walks you know in our communities we're like hey hey he's not saying don't do that there was an ancient Near Eastern custom in greetings uh, that, that they were very elaborate. They were very time-consuming. And he's saying, in effect, he's saying, my call on your life is one of urgency. It must not be delayed. Here's his point. He's calling us to recognize that in taking the gospel message to a needy world and sometimes a hostile world, we have to do it prayerfully But not only prayerfully, we have to do it recognizing that we're helpless apart from Christ. And we're totally dependent on Christ to change hearts. And hence we do it fully trusting in Christ. He'll care for us. He'll supply all our needs. Jesus calls us to fervently pray for the vast opportunities. He calls us to fully trust in God, to supply all our needs, to be the one who changes hearts. He calls us thirdly here to boldly proclaim the kingdom while expecting mixed responses. And don't worry, we're not not gonna do two verses at a time forever here. Uh, Let's look at verse five and let's go all the way down through 11. Listen to what, what uh, what he says. Whatever house you enter, verse five, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not... It will return to you and remain in the same house eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you eat what is before you. Let me just pause there. All this eating like what this is not like your mama saying eat what's set before you. This is Jesus saying you're going into Samaritan territory. There's all these food laws for the Jews. Don't get caught up in the food laws eat what's before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, we're not going to... be able to to dwell in these verses too long for the interest of time, but let me just give you an overview of what he's saying. He's saying, I'm sending you out to the towns and villages, and when you arrive in them, here's what you're to do. You're looking for a place to stay for a, a set period of time to share the good news of the gospel, and you enter a house, and you pronounce this greeting on it, peace be to this house. Now, an unthinking person might think, well, that's a strange greeting maybe that's a nice wish to an unthinking person they might view that that way to friends when you greet friends that way it might be an expression a real genuine expression of a sincere desire I've got a a good friend uh, Hank Curran's mom uh, Tina Curran always greets me that way Uh, she goes to Good Shepherd and she will always greet me with peace peace be to you It's an expression of sincere desire, but in this instance, it's so much more. Jesus is saying, you're coming in the name of Jesus with the message of the arrival of the kingdom of God, not simply to wish peace, but to actually bring peace, to bring the news of peace, of reconciliation to God through Jesus. And he's saying the people's response will either be to receive you or reject you. And so when you go in these villages and you find a place to say and you go out into the streets and you go out into other homes and you're sharing the message of the gospel, you do these two things boldly. He says in verse 9, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Don't you love that both those things go together? The healings were important the ministries of uh, the miracles and the ministries of mercy were important you see Jesus performing them all the time but as important as they are they're not sufficient you've got to be accompanying those miracles those ministries of mercy with the proclamation of the kingdom of God that Jesus is here the long awaited Messiah is here he's calling his followers to boldly proclaim the kingdom in word and deed but to do it expecting mixed responses some will accept it and others will reject it don't be surprised and when it's rejected he says this go into the streets and say even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you nevertheless know this the kingdom of God has come near he's saying that's what you're supposed to say nevertheless the kingdom of God has come near your rejection of Jesus—that's what this means. Your rejection of Jesus does not alter, rea- alter the reality that He has come near; He's been in your midst. It's a, it's a symbolic action. Uh, it, it's one that, that really is a, is a picture. It's a—it's a public declaration of divine displeasure on those who reject the message of the gospel. This is not, like sometimes we think this is the, the equivalent of saying forget you, you had your chance. That's not what this is. That's not a merciful spirit. This is a sober warning that they're bringing condemnation on themselves. They're bringing divine consequences on themselves by rejecting Jesus. He calls us As his followers to fervently pray for the opportunities that are around us every day, he calls us to fully trust in God to supply all our needs. He calls us to boldly proclaim the kingdom in word and in deed, but also to do so expecting that we'll get mixed responses. And lastly, he calls us to soberly recognize the eternal consequences of rejecting Jesus. Look at verse 12 down through the end. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. He's talking about the town that's rejected Jesus. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. In these verses, he's addressing the eternal destiny of those who reject him, who reject the gospel, those who harden their hearts against the gospel. And again, when he's pronouncing woe on these cities, he's not calling for vengeance on them. That's not what this means. Woe is an exclamation of great sorrow and great distress and great warning. And without getting into the background of all the cities mentioned here, let me just summarize what he's saying. He's saying when he talks about cities like Sodom and Tyre and Sidon, these were ancient cities that everyone knew were incredibly corrupt, ancient cities that had sinned grievously, ancient cities that had had prophets of God sent to them to proclaim uh, the message of the prophets. And they rejected the prophets. And Jesus is saying, if the mighty works that had been done in you in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, if those mighty works had been done in these ancient cities, those cities would have repented. And so he says, those cities that you look back on and look down on, they're going to be better off in judgment than the cities you're in now, than you are. Cities where Jesus himself had had, had brought the message of the gospel where Jesus had performed the miracles and raised people from the dead and, and restored the sight to the blind. Jesus had performed the miracles. He'd been preaching there. He'd been rejected there. This is a sober warning that these ancient cities you look down on are going to be in better shape in judgment than you are. Indeed, uh, to whom much is given, much is required. And I love verse 16, he says in effect, in verse 16, what he's really saying is, you had me. He's saying to these cities, you had me, the only begotten son of God in your midst, the one who's fully God and fully man in your midst. You had me there performing these miracles, preaching the good news that the kingdom is here, and you rejected me, hence you rejected God the Father. And there are eternal consequences to that. There's no such thing as neutrality towards jesus either he's savior and lord of your life or he's not that's what he's saying i need to start wrapping up so let me wrap up with this wonderful story that i heard this summer it's the uh the uh, the season right now to tell stories about the queen uh, back in June, I heard this story. I watched this, uh, this story being told on television at the platinum jubilee of Elizabeth II. Uh, the, the jubilee marking her 70th anniversary of her ascension to the throne. The story was told by a man named Richard Griffin. And I, I encourage you to, to look it up on YouTube and watch it. Just listening to him, just seeing and listening to him, you can tell he's a delightful Uh, English gentleman and he served as a royal protection officer uh, a bodyguard we might call him stationed at Buckingham Palace he served the royal family for over 30 years his first uh, charge was to watch over one of the queen's sons while he was at Cambridge I bet that was interesting Then he spent 13 years assigned to Prince Philip to the Duke of Edinburgh, and then the last 14 years, he was Queen Elizabeth's personal protection officer. He told this delightful story uh, that he had accompanied the queen on this hike and this picnic one spring day, one early spring day, on lands near the grounds of Balmoral Castle, and that day it was just the queen and Mr. Griffin, and this is the story he told. He said, normally at these picnic sites, you don't meet anyone in the spring, but there were two hikers coming towards us, and the queen stopped to say hello. They were two Americans on a walking holiday. Don't you just kind of cringe like, oh, these are our people. It was clear from the moment we first stopped that they didn't recognize the queen, which is fine. And the American gentleman was telling the queen where he'd come from and where they were going next and what they were doing in Britain. And I could just see it coming. And sure enough, he said to her, he said to her majesty, where do you live? (laughs) And she said, well, I live in London, but I have a holiday home on the other side of these hills. And he said, well, how often have you been coming up here? And she said, I've been coming up here Ever since I was a little girl, so over 80 years, and you could just see the clock ticking. If he, he replied, the, the, the man, the American replied, well, if you've been coming up here for 80 years, you must have met the queen. And quick as a flash, the queen said, well, I haven't, but Dick here meets her regularly. So the guy said to me, you met the queen? What's she like? And because I was with her a long time, I knew I could pull her leg a bit. So I said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she's got a lovely sense of humor. And the next thing I knew, the guy came around, put his arm around my shoulder, and before I could see what happened, he handed his camera to the queen and said, can you take a picture of the two of us? (laughs) Anyway, the queen took the picture and then we swapped places and I took a picture of them with the queen and we never let on. We waved goodbye to our new friends and Her Majesty said to me, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows those photographs to his friends in America. (laughs) Hopefully someone will tell him who I am. I love that story, how it illustrates the wit and the charm of the queen and you and you just have to wonder how those two Americans felt when they got back to to the states and realized they had been in the presence of the queen of England and yet they missed it they had no clue who she was can you imagine how foolish they must have felt and yet when you think about it there's no harm done there There's no harm in not recognizing the true identity of the Queen of England who stood before them and conversed with them. There's no harm there. There are no eternal consequences there. Just a little embarrassment. What Luke would say to us, what Jesus would say to us is not so with this passage. Jesus is telling us that for those who do not recognize him... As the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who do not recognize Him as as God in the flesh, the Savior of sinners, who those who reject Him, instead of placing their trust in Him, instead of that, they reject Him, Jesus would say, It's not mere embarrassment, they're eternal consequences. He's the only one through whom sinful people like me and like you can be reconciled to God. And because that's true, a prayerful urgency to share this message of the gospel should mark our lives. That's part of what it will look like to have a merciful spirit towards those who oppose Jesus. We'll want to share the message of the gospel. And friends, that merciful spirit, that prayerful urgency, it marked Jesus' life too. For he's the one who took on flesh and lived among us. He's the one who gave himself for us that we might be freely given the righteousness of Christ, that we might be welcomed by the Father. Uh, May a deep desire to share that message of the gospel, even with the opponents of the gospel, may that mark our lives. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our prayer really is quite simple. Would you be pleased to sow work in our hearts, that you would grant us merciful spirits, Lord, that we would be diligent to pray and proclaim in word and deed the message of the kingdom, that a Savior's come, that is available to all who place their trust fully in our crucified and resurrected Savior. That's our prayer. We offer in his name alone. Amen.